Well, as we open God's word this morning, let's bow together and ask the Lord's assistance. Our Father, we do open your word with fear and trembling, with expectation and with joy. We thank you that you, in your mercy and grace, have given us your word. You've revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself unfalteringly, unerringly, that we have the perfect revelation of who you are and of salvation through Christ, that every word of the scriptures proved true. Father, I ask that you would please give us the respect, the reverence for you and your word as it deserves, and may you teach us from your word this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, you don't have to be a Christian very long before you uh, hear the word legalism come up somewhere in the church, somewhere in Christian lingo. I, growing up in the church, I heard my fellow teenagers who uh, found that the word legalism could be an easy way to deflect any accountability. Somebody would say, hey, what are you doing? And they go, well, you're just being legalistic. Don't, you know, why are you pointing out that sin? That's just being, being legalistic. It's, it was an easy way to, uh, to parry the accountability and to deflect the accusation. But what does it mean to be legalistic? What is legalism? If we don't define the disease rightly, then we won't be able to diagnose it rightly when we see it. And more often than not, the legalism that Christians think they see in others isn't legalism at all, and they fail often to see true legalism in their own lives. As a working definition this morning, I'd simply say that legalism can be defined as the belief that one can be right with God through performing the right behaviors. One can be right with God through performing the right behaviors. Legalism teaches that one's obedience earns merit in one's account before God. This belief can affect both someone's view of salvation and someone's view of sanctification. In other words, how someone comes to Christ and how someone becomes more like Christ. Legalism can affect both those views. And even if someone comes to Christ through faith, legalism can easily creep into a Christian's heart and into the church. Why is this? Why is legalism a constant threat? It's because legalism is a basic impulse of every human heart. It's been said by many that there are only two religions in the world. There is that which is salvation through faith and all the rest that teach salvation through works. Salvation by faith or salvation by works. You see, the human heart naturally, when it sees a problem in itself and it wants to remedy that problem, it seeks to solve that problem by itself. It says, I see a problem in my life, I need to change it. And so it endeavors to, in essence, save itself. 
The human heart wants to earn its salvation. We want to be righteous by our own effort. We want to say, yes, I'm a better person now. Yes, I'm a changed person now. It's because we want the glory. We want the credit. You see, legalism is where our sinful hearts gravitate toward unless the gospel keeps us rooted in Christ. Now, let me be clear. Legalism, in its full-fledged way, as we'll see in our passage this morning, practiced by the Pharisees in Jesus' day and by many in our own, is spiritually lethal. Full-fledged legalism followed to the nth degree, is spiritually lethal. It causes people to trust in their own works instead of trusting in Christ, and it keeps them trapped in their sin. But for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have placed our faith in, in him and recognize that it's none of our own works that have saved us and we placed our faith in Jesus, we can still find instances of legalism creeping into our hearts and lives. We can adopt legalistic thinking in certain areas of our Christian life. Now, these instances of legalism do not threaten our security in Christ. They don't threaten our salvation and our union with Jesus. But they are instances of sin and therefore need to be repented of. So we need to know legalism so that we can fight against it in our own lives, in our own homes, and in our church. Our text this morning will help us identify this deadly legalism, and so I invite you to turn with me to Luke 11 in your personal copy of God's Word. If you don't have your own this morning, you can use one of the pew Bibles directly in front of you and find our passage on page 1034, 1034. At this point in Luke's gospel, the opposition and antagonism against Jesus has escalated. It's continued to grow throughout the book, but here it's reaching a new fever pitch. And so Jesus begins to volley his own attacks back at the religious leaders. Here in our passage this morning, he unleashes a tirade against the scribes and the Pharisees. Because they are responsible for how the nation is receiving Jesus. They are leading the nation. They're directing the nation spiritually. And therefore, if he is going to address how the nation is receiving Jesus, he needs to address the leaders. And in this, Jesus does not mince words as he bluntly tells the truth about them and calls them out for their hypocrisy. And so let's begin by first reading our passage, verses Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. Follow along as I read. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In this passage, as Jesus, with repeated blows, attacks the religious establishment, we're going to see seven characteristics of legalism that Jesus identifies here. And as we go through these, we should examine ourselves to see where are there instances in which legalism has crept into our own lives. So the first characteristic of legalism this passage identifies for us. Number one, legalism focus on, focuses on externals. Legalism focuses on externals. Verses 39 through 41. Sorry, this will be verses 37 through 41. We're going to start at the first verse, not, at the, not two verses in. Verse 37 through 41. It says, verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, these, was speaking, a Pharisee asked to, to dine with him. Here, a Pharisee has invited him to lunch. Jesus accepts it. He's done this once before in chapter 7. He's going to do it again in chapter 14. And what this shows is that Jesus... As much as he reaches the debauched sinners of society, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, he also seeks to reach the elite, the spiritual elite of society. Those who claim to be the most holy and the most religious. Jesus goes into the house and he walks right by the hand washing station. We don't know exactly what this would have looked like. Potentially just a basin that was there by the door. But Jesus blows right by it to which the Pharisee was astonished it says verse 38 the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner now hand washing for the Jews of this day was not a hygiene or health issue as it is today it was more had to do with ceremonial purity they had to cleanse themselves from all the defilements of the world now the Old Testament had laws about cleansing but not particularly this minute, saying that you had to wash your hands before you ate every meal or do it a certain way. And so the law that the Pharisee was expecting Jesus to follow was not explicitly God's law, but a man-made addition to the law. And therefore, Jesus did not sin in which 
uh, in by breaking this law or by not going through with this practice. The, the premise behind this requirement, again, was that as they went throughout their, their days, the Pharisees recognized that they touched all sorts of things. They interacted with all sorts of people, and who knows, they probably touched some defiling thing. And so in order to come and before the meal, they needed to cleanse their hands. The Pharisee was watching. Notice, it says the Pharisee was astonished to see. It says that he was while watching, he was astonished. He kind of was off to the side saying, what's Jesus going to do? And he walks right by that washing basin. And he was, a, he was shocked. Now this shock was also a mixture of surprise and disapproval. Astonished, how dare he? How dare he neglect such an important duty? I can only imagine that this Pharisee, along with his friends, would have given some indication of their astonishment, right? All the gasps in the room. <gasps> the look, the whispering. Jesus can instantly know what's going on. He knows that they are all astonished that he didn't wash in that basin that he just walked by. So it says, verse 39, he picked up on this and he instantly speaks to them in the midst of this astonishment. And he uses this opportunity to call out the Pharisees. Verse 39, notice that Luke calls Jesus the Lord. He's noting here that the one speaking is not just anyone, but is particularly Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is the Lord who is addressing these religious leaders. In other words, the God that these men claim to follow is now addressing them. They should take heed. And the Lord calls out these men for their hypocrisy. They are simply focused on externals. They clean the outside of the cup and the dish. This is referencing their own ceremonial washing that when it comes to uh, the dishes that they use, that they would clean the outside of the dish. But figuratively, Jesus is using it as an illustration that they clean themselves. They wash themselves. They wash their hands when they come to a meal. But they neglect the inside. They neglect the interior. While they clean the exterior, the interior is full of greed and wickedness, Jesus says. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's like looking at a beautiful cup in the store, then you pull it off the shelf and you look inside and it's full of, of rotting meat. And you are repulsed by it. You, you set it back and go, this, this is a dirty cup. And, this, and the store clerk says, yeah, but look how clean it is on the outside. And you go, that's not the point. I want a cup that's clean through and through. And friends, this is exactly what God wants of his followers. A cup that is clean through and through. These Pharisees focused on their behavior their speech, their religious duties, their rituals, looking good before others, and yet they completely neglected the condition of their hearts. They didn't bother to look at what was on the inside, what was being nurtured in their own motives and in their desires. They were simply focused on the fruit of the tree and didn't look at the root. And so verse 40, look at it, he says, you fools, 
You fools. Now, this is not Jesus calling them idiots or calling them stupid. This is borrowing an Old Testament term. Fools in the Old Testament were those who ignored God and lived their own way in spite of what God revealed. Those who had looked at what God has said and they said, I don't care about that God, I'm going to live my own way. They were practical atheists. Jesus says, you Pharisees are those fools. And then he asked them a question, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? You see, by their hypocrisy, they had denied God's creation and God's sovereignty over both the body and the soul. And Jesus' point is that the God who created the physical outside of the body that they so dutifully washed also created their hearts and wants those, their hearts washed as well. They claim to be obeying God and yet they're neglecting what God has created. If they care about the one, they should care about the other too. Friends, the same is true today. Legalism breeds hypocrisy wherever it is found. And it causes people to look at externals only. To look at how they're living behaviorally. To seek to clean themselves up to morally be a better person. Thinking that they can attain some sort of righteousness on their own. And this again, can be a temptation of Christians who have been in the church even a long time. They can begin to judge themselves based upon certain behaviors, on inner, certain things that they avoid in the world and certain ways of dress and certain duties they perform and certain ministries they're a part of. I know in my own life, there's times where I've judged my own maturity based upon my Bible reading how consistent I am and, and looking down and judging on, on how inconsistent other people are. Not thinking about where is my heart, where is their heart, but simply looking at the external habit of it. Our maturity is not only judged by the external things that we do. There's a heart that we must be considering. When a focus on externals excludes the issues of the heart, legalism has settled in. But notice Jesus isn't saying that externals don't matter. He, he's saying that we have to deal with both our hearts and our behavior. As we deal with the root of the tree, the fruit will end up being different. Verse 41, he says somewhat of a strange statement. Look at it. He says, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. I think what... The best way to understand this is that the Pharisees, in seeking to be a righteous person, they would give alms to the poor, and that was a very keystone of their uh, religious activity. But Jesus here says that their first priority is that they need to take care of the matters of the heart. That before they give their stuff and they give their money, they must give their hearts. Give as alms those things that are within, the heart that is within. They're to flip their focus. Instead of prioritizing the outside. They should prioritize the inside, prioritize their hearts. And when they do that, the exterior actions will then be pure as well. Behold, everything will be clean, is clean for you. Same is true for us. We must focus on our hearts. This is what we do in our teaching. This is what we do in our parenting. This is what we do in our counseling. This is what we do when we confront one another. We're not merely focused on behaviors. 
We care about how we live. We care about the actions that we do, the words that we say. We care about the behaviors, the ways that we live. But in order to change that, we must get at the heart. If we merely focus on behavior, changing what we do on the outside, it's moralism and it's teaching legalism. So how is your heart? Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you done a heart check recently? Have you just been focused on your externals, on how you're living, on the Christian behaviors? Are you seeking to be one who follows Christ at the heart level? Are you killing sin at the root or just changing external behavior? Legalism, first of all, focuses on externals. But the second characteristic Jesus gives us in this passage is that legalism neglects God's priorities. Legalism neglects God's priorities. Look at verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here in verse 42, Jesus begins on three woes to the Pharisees. Then there's going to be a break in verse 45 as a lawyer speaks up. And he's going to give three woes to the lawyers. A total of six woes that he's giving to the religious establishment here. Verse 42 begins the first woe to the Pharisees. These, a woe is a statement of impending judgment. It's like a prophetic statement used by the Old Testament prophets. And it's a manner of speech that calls out wicked behavior and announces that there is judgment coming. Jesus use this occasion to first accuse the religious leaders for their emphasizing of the trivial and while neglecting the significant. It says that you tithe, mint, and ruin every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. You see, the Mosaic Law in Leviticus, or, uh, <clears throat> Leviticus 27, verse 30, God told them to give a tenth of their produce, to tithe out of the, what they have grown on their land. But the rabbis, in their desire to, for detailed obedience, created laws that continued to go down into the minute level. It was no longer about their orchards and about their crops out in the field. It came down to the herbs growing on their windowsill. And they carefully snipped the tenth of their herbs in which there was no law to do this. This could have been done out of a desire to love God and obey Him fully, but for them... It was an issue of trying to appear righteous while totally neglecting what God wanted them to focus on. Jesus says it wasn't wrong for them to do this. These you ought to have done, he says. But the key is without neglecting the most important things. God cares about our priorities. These men, while claiming to obey God, they were treating people unjustly. They neglected justice, they said. They were depriving people who were less fortunate, lower class of society with justice. And most serious of all, even though they claimed to be obeying God, they neglected the love of God. And this is, this is a big accusation for the Jews in Israel because what was the, the great commandment that they were given. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
They were to love God. This was the first and foremost commandment. And Jesus accuses these elite leaders of Israel of neglecting that. They haven't even gotten off the starting line. They haven't even begun. And this is a serious charge, friends, that we need to be aware of in our own lives. It's easy, for tempta it's easy temptation for Christians to get their priorities out of line and out of order. Particularly in the areas of freedom that are found within the areas of the Christian life and in Christian ministry. Believers can become so worked up over a particular activity or the way something is done in church that what you hear from them is not the main things. The gospel and the love of God, but what you hear are these peripheral things. That's what comes through. And you can highlight any sort of Christian freedom issues that, are, that, are, that Christians have, have talked through and gave, battled through over the decades. Issues of alcohol or clothing or entertainment or politics or vaccinations. And the list can go on and on, right? These are things that are areas of Christian freedom, and yet Christians can begin to make these things the main things that they talk to others about and that they champion and that they push for. And again, it's not to say these things don't matter, but we've got to get our priorities right. We've got to get our priorities right. The two greatest commandments that Jesus said is to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Those are the things that we must be emphasizing. Those are the things we must be ordering our lives around. And we must be urging other people, other believers to be about before we then are slavish about other things. Legalism majors on the minors and minors on the majors. It doesn't keep the main thing the main thing. And as believers in Jesus Christ, may we be known for emphasizing that which is at the top of God's list. The third characteristic of legalism this passage gives us is that legalism seeks admiration for, for spiritual accomplishments. Legalism seeks admiration for spiritual accomplishments. Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus highlights these men don't love God. They love themselves. They love the praise that comes to themselves. They love their own glory and they go out of their way to receive glory, to sit in places where they'll receive glory, to walk to the marketplaces so that they'll be, be highlighted as a, 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 a spiritual person and will receive that praise. They thrived on it. Jesus calls them out for it. For you love agape. You love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. These best seats in the synagogue are probably front rows, some places where everybody could see them, could see their elaborate clothing, could see the way that they worshiped, to see the way that they were close to the action. The greetings in the marketplaces, it was customary to do elaborate greetings in the Near East and, and particularly to someone who was as important as a Pharisee. And make a commotion, it would cause people to look at them and praise them for how righteous they were. Friends, the pride which ran in the Pharisees' heart and caused them to love the praise and love the attention 
is a pride which can run in our own hearts as well if we're not careful. When we are focused on externals and care more about following religious rules than loving Christ, we want to be noticed for doing those religious things. And so when someone is fully bought into legalism, as the Pharisees were, they love themselves and they're trying as hard as they can to show themselves to be righteous before God and before others. It's all a show game for someone who is fully legalistic, trying to earn their righteousness before God. And so I ask you, where uh, do you see the love of human admiration in your own heart? Where is it that you may be trying to gain the approval of other people? Where is it that a love for praise might be superseding a love for God? Where a love of recognition may be motivating you? Is it for a certain ministry position or title? Is it for serving in some way that would make you more noticed? Or maybe you're playing the long game. Oh, I don't need the recognition now. But once I finish, I better get a pretty good thank you party. We all find ways to save that little corner of our heart for human praise. And we need to call it out for what it is. Maybe you suddenly hope that people will think higher of you for where you sit, for questions you ask, for homework you do. There's any number of ways Friends, that we could be going about normal Christian things that two people could be sitting side by side in a, in a class or in a small group and be saying the same exact things but be motivated by two different reasons. And that's why we can't simply look at externals. We've got to look at our own hearts. Why are we doing these things? You see, legalism, trying to earn our righteousness before God and others through our behavior, shows itself in a love of human praise. And, we, and living for the attention of man is sin that we must repent of. The fourth characteristic that this passage gives us of legalism is that legalism leads to spiritual death. Legalism leads to spiritual death. Verse 44, the final woe that Jesus gives the Pharisees. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. This is the most severe that Jesus gives to the Pharisees here. He says that because of their legalism, their hypocrisy, their failure to love God and pride, they show that they are spiritually dead. They are unmarked graves. They don't look dead, but they are. They are the creepiest kind of zombie. They look like a normal person, and yet they are absolutely dead on the inside. They are dead and rotting, and nobody knows it. Again, this is shocking language. This would have continued to offend this dinner party. As Jesus is telling these elite of their society that who, who people thought they were the most spiritual, the most holy, they, they did all the things that God commanded. That surely God's pleased with them. Surely they're doing the right things. And Jesus says, no, you aren't paragons of, of piety. You are death. Now the Old Testament law specified in Numbers uh, chapter 19, that if someone touches a grave, they become unclean. And so by here, Jesus is saying that your unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it, it means that people who are interacting with you, it, it, the people that are following your teaching, are becoming unclean. They're morally defiled by you. 
Here you seeking to wash your hands and, and be the most clean and holy person you can be, and yet you are actually the stench and defiling source for this nation. But I think more than just simply becoming unclean, Jesus is saying that those who truly follow the teaching of the Pharisees will end up in the same condition as the Pharisees themselves. They will find themselves as a grave, spiritually dead. And the scariest part of this is that the people following these teachers don't even know the danger that they're in. They're following the Pharisees thinking that they are teaching them the right way of God and yet they don't realize that they're on the road to death. They're being duped by false teaching. This is the case of all those who are, who are, who are following false teachers. They don't know they're on the path of spiritual destruction. And this is true today. Those in false religions and, and, and cults that claim to be Christian, sound Christian, maybe claim to teach the Bible, maybe quote from the Bible, have you studied the Bible? And yet they hold people in bondage through legalism and they keep people from the gospel of life. And unfortunately, the followers, many of them don't know they're on the way to a spiritual grave. Friends, the warning for us is that it's possible for someone to spend a lifetime in the church, to look and sound like a Christian, to have many Christian practices in their lives, and yet to be spiritually dead on the inside. This is why we must examine our hearts. We must look to see that we haven't neglected the most important thing, which is love to God and faith in Christ. God doesn't care how much you've followed his, his rules and obeyed his commands if you haven't done the most important thing, which is trusted in Jesus for your salvation. You cannot trust in your own works. You cannot trust in your church attendance and your Bible reading. You cannot trust in any sort of behaviors. You simply have to throw yourself upon Jesus and say, I am guilty. Woe is me. Save me, Jesus. And when we throw ourselves upon him, we find salvation because he is the savior of sinners. Amen? That is the good news. Not that there is a spiritual ladder that we must climb in order to be saved, but that we simply need to trust Jesus who climbed that ladder for us and his perfect obedience is credited to our account when we trust in him. Oftentimes when I'm trying to help someone to help determine where someone stands with the Lord, I'll ask him this question. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand at the gate of heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? The question's not hard, but the answer is revealing. Those who say, well, you know, I've been in the church all my life. I've, tr I've tried to hard to be a good person, tried hard to obey. Person who looks to their own track record reveals that they're depending on their own works to get into heaven. But see, the gospel enables us to stand before God and to say, I don't deserve to enter your heaven because of my sin. I am guilty as charged. But I have trusted in your son and you have promised that all who place their faith in him are able to enter and able to be saved. And so I can be led into your heaven because I'm with him. Because I'm united to Jesus. That's trusting in him and his work and his sacrifice to, for our salvation. 
not trusting your own works. And so I ask you, what are you trusting in? I ask that question of you, if you were to die tonight, and you're standing before the gates of heaven, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What is it that you are trusting in for your eternal salvation and security? Is it Jesus' works, or is it your own? The fifth characteristic this passage reveals about legalism is that legalism crushes people. Legalism crushes people. Verses 45 and 46. At this point, Jesus has finished his woes to the Pharisees. And he, now it says, verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I mean, you just have to chuckle. The guy's sitting there going, Does he, does he know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, excuse me, you're, um, you're offending us too, you know. Like, hey, like you're, you're trigger happy here and you're spraying people. Did you know that you hit us? And Jesus says, oh yeah, I was intending to hit you. And so then he reloads and fires three shots at the lawyers. These lawyers were scribes. They're experts in the law. They knew the law of Moses and all the other rabbinical laws and they followed them fastidiously. This man confronts Jesus. I half expecting Jesus to apologize. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to step on your toes. I didn't mean to offend you. I was only speaking to the Pharisees, not to you scribes. But Jesus doubles down. Why does he do this? Because he wants to make clear he's not just targeting one role within the religious establishment. He is targeting the whole religious structure that Israel had set up at this time. And so in verse 46, he launches into three woes directed toward the lawyers. And first of all, he says, verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This he says, you load people with burdens that are hard to bear, referring to their laws, referring to the regulations, referring to the, all the things that they place upon the people that you, in order to follow God, in order to obey him, in order to be pleasing to God, you've got to do X, Y, and Z, and all this list of regulations. And they place it upon the people and say, good day. Go live this out. And the people leave bearing a heavy burden with unable to carry out these onerous laws. They walk away going, how do I ever live without, without causing some infraction? They believe, the lawyers believe, they were clarifying God's law. God's law is wide and it's vague and, and so you need some specifics on how to make it actually work in your day-to-day -day. and so let us help you. We'll give you uh, thousands of specifics to go into your daily life. For example, in order to clarify the fourth commandment, which says to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, they created a law that a man may not carry an object in his right hand, in his left hand, in his bosom, or on his shoulder. However, he may carry it on the back of his hand, or with his food, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet if it's carried mouth downward, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. Super clear, right? And it's with these kinds of laws that people inevitably disobeyed. And so they were taught also to obey man's laws with the same allegiance as God's law. The lawyer said, obey all these regulations with the same kind of obedience with which you obey the fourth commandment because this is a clarification of the fourth commandment. And so these people end up following man's law rather than God's. 
And they carry this burden on their souls that they're displeasing God. And they feel like they can never do anything right. But in addition to creating such laws, these teachers of the law do nothing to help these people carry their burdens. They've placed them on their people people and they send them on their way and they have no compassion and no desire to try to help them. The people are there groaning under the weight of these laws and the lawyers sit back and smile because they're able to follow them. Too bad for them. These are wicked leaders. These are religious leaders who have no compassion. They are morally bankrupt. They are shepherds who eat their own sheep. They gloat over their superiority over others that they oppress. And this is what legalism does. It places burdens on people they can't carry and it loves to watch them suffer. In the church, legalists don't offer anything to the plagued sinner but more law. To those who are plagued by their own sin, the legalist simply puts more law upon them and says your problem is you're not obeying the law good enough. Where do you find help for obeying God's law? Well, just confess your sin and try harder. How can you be assured of your salvation? Well, make sure you're obeying. Make sure that you keep following God's law. And where do you find comfort for your failings? Well, trust that your repentance has been genuine and, and promise to be different next time. Just keep trying harder. You see, the true legalist, the full legalist, can't help a fellow struggler because he doesn't know Christ. He's never cast his burden of sin on the Savior, and so he can't help others do the same. The full legalists, like these lawyers here, believe that they are attaining their own righteousness, believe that they are doing what is right to be pleasing in God's sight, and so they simply tell others to do the same thing. And it's not a path to salvation. Friends, the only salvation is found in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Savior of men, the perfect helper of sinners. And this is why Jesus said, in the light of this religious climate, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, we are justified by faith in this Savior, not by our works. Even our justification is a gift from God. We did not earn our salvation. We cannot keep our salvation. We trust in the finished work of Christ. The gospel reminds us that yes, we do fall short of God's law all the time, every day, and we can admit that because we know that that sin has been paid for and that Jesus, Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly. And so friends, the gospel doesn't crush us, it frees us frees us to live for Christ because we rest in him. Legalism, though, crushes people. The sixth characteristic this passage gives us of legalism is that legalism rejects God's messengers. Legalism rejects God's messengers. This second woe of the lawyers is the longest of the woes that Jesus gives in this passage. And in this woe, Jesus outlines the lawyers' guilt by describing their complicity in the killing of God's past and present messengers. First, in verses 47 and 48, we see that they were complicit in killing God's past messengers. They were complicit in killing God's past messengers. In these two verses, Jesus targets the culpability of these unbelieving leaders using a chiasm. A chiasm 
if you've never heard of it, is a literary structure used in the Bible, and it's named after the Greek letter key. What you need to know is that about a chiasm is that the punchline is found in the middle. Okay? So let me show you these verses rearranged in the order of a chiasm of a descending phrases and ascending phrases. We, put the, we can put that slide up. And you can see that each step of the descent and the ascent accord with one another, align with another part of the verse. So you can see that they say, for you build the tombs of the prophets, lines up with the last phrase, you build their tombs. The second phrase, whom your fathers killed, lines up with, for they killed them. But the point is in the middle. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. This it's like an arrow that Jesus is shooting into them, and the very point of it is that you are just as guilty as those who killed the prophets of prior generations. You're witnesses to your own misdeeds. You consent to the deeds of your fathers. The lawyers tried to show that they were honoring the prophets by building tombs. They seek to uh, try to say, oh, look, we honor this prophet because, look, we built a big shrine, a big tomb in their honor. They're deceiving the people that they were prophet honorers, but Jesus says that by doing this, they actually were participating in the murderous activity of prior generations. In other words, Jesus is saying, the fathers killed, your fathers killed, and the children buried. The fathers killed the prophets, and you're simply completing the act by burying them. You're just as guilty as the previous. They may be fooling the masses with their tomb-building program, but Jesus sees right through it. But this leads Jesus, Jesus to go on and describe their complicity, not only in killing past messengers, but present messengers. Verses 49 through 51. It says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Now by speaking of the wisdom of God, Jesus is not quoting of the Old Testament. When I first read this, I thought, oh, where is that quoted in the Old Testament? Because it kind of looks like an Old Testament quotation. But it is, it is not an, an Old Testament quotation. It seems best to understand it as Jesus is simply revealing God's wisdom, revealing God's will or God's intent. He's revealing the mind of God. In other words, he's saying that it's God's will in his wisdom to send prophets and apostles. And yet those very ones he's sending will be killed by the Jews and be persecuted. God in his wisdom knows what this generation is going to do to true prophets. They know what the, he knows what they're going to do to Jesus. Jesus is God's greatest prophet. Therefore, what they do to Jesus is the greatest offense. He is the culmination and the climax of all the prophets that came before. And therefore, because they will destroy and kill Jesus, God will hold them accountable for all the prophet slains previous to this. To make this point clear, Jesus says that they'll be charged with the deaths of every prophet from Abel to Zechariah. Abel is the first murder recorded in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. Zechariah is the last murder recorded, not in our English canon, order of books, which our last book is Malachi in our English Bibles. In the Hebrew Bible, the last book is 2 Chronicles. And there in 2 Chronicles 24, the last murder recorded is the death of Zechariah the prophet. Jesus is saying that from beginning to end of the Old Testament, you are guilty for the murdering of all of these prophets. Severe judgment awaits this generation. 
They uniquely hold the blame for rejecting and killing Jesus, and thus God will hold them all accountable. But I believe that in all of this, it reminds us that even today, the self-righteous and legalistic reject God's true messengers. They don't want to hear the truth. They like the truth as they've divine, designed it. They use the commands of God and, the, and, the, and the, wor the word of God to suit their own ends. They don't want to hear the gospel of God's free grace. Truly, they say, God's grace can't be that free. He can't forgive sinners who haven't done all the righteous deeds that I have. They haven't jumped through all the spiritual hoops that I've jumped through. If you preach that much grace, they say, the church is going to be full of unrighteous people. You see, the unredeemed and legalistic don't want to hear the true gospel. In Jesus' day, they killed God's prophets. Today, they reject all those who preach a true gospel. And they're antagonistic against it. Well, now we come to the final characteristic of legalism in our passage. Verses 51 to 54, legalism prevents people from knowing the truth. Legalism prevents people from knowing the truth. In his final woe, Jesus indicts the religious leaders for obstructing the path to knowledge. He says, verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. The knowledge of God, which is revealed in his word, is pictured as a door that people must walk through to be saved. And as they stand at the door, and they have God's people standing in front of that door, they have the key, and they throw it away. How much do you have to hate God to throw away that key? How much do you have to hate people to throw away that key? To say, I don't want you to know the truth. I don't want you to know the saving God. And that's exactly what they do. But Jesus points out, not only did they hinder others from going in, they didn't go in themselves. They think that they made it in and everyone else hasn't quite measured up. But Jesus says, no, uh, no, you didn't even get in yourselves. These teachers not only damned themselves to hell, but others as well. They took away the key of knowledge. They hid the truth of God's word behind so many extra clarifications and qualifications that they ended up turning the, the gospel into a religion of works. Instead of showing the path of repentance, they taught the path of self-justification. Instead of modeling love for God, they showed love for self. Instead of instructing to obey God's commandments, they directed people to obey their own rules. Instead of teaching faith in God's grace, they taught faith in one's religious works. Instead of preparing Israel for their Messiah, they hardened them against him. They utterly failed as interpreters and teachers of scripture, which is true of all false teachers, by the way. Now, verse 53 and 54 is a summary of this account, but it, tell, it shows us the true character of these men, that they did not repent, that they did not listen to Jesus' word, that they did not turn from their wicked ways. They continued on in their path of hardness and spiritual deadness. Look at 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They went into full attack mode. Like a lion prowling through the grass, they were waiting to pounce upon their prey. 
They remained hardened in their unbelief and their sin. Friends, this is a solemn reminder that a works-based religion ultimately damns both its teachers and its hearers. There is no life in legalism, in simply putting a bunch of rules and hoops, spiritual hoops to jump through. And this is why Paul was so enraged when he wrote to the Galatians. For anyone to add works to the gospel, to tell people that the path to God is through one's own religious accomplishments is a damning gospel, and those people are to be accursed. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed to hell, Paul is saying. Friends, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. We must trust in his perfect work. We must trust in his perfect sacrifice. His righteousness is the only righteousness that will get us into heaven. His righteousness is the only one that God will accept. We cannot get to the gate of heaven and pull out anything good of our own. The Bible says that all the goodness that we have is simply filthy rags. You have nothing. That's why the hymn writer taught us to sing, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. We cling to his cross and his righteousness as our assurance, as our only salvation. Do not trust in your deeds. Do not trust in all the, the Christian behavior that you've had all through the years. Do not trust in anything else but in Jesus Christ, for there is salvation found in no one else. He is your only hope, and that salvation is offered to you today to the one who has lived a debauched life and hasn't thought of God for one instant can turn to Jesus today and find forgiveness for all of his sins and the one who has lived his life in the church and has sought to do religious things and yet realizes today that they haven't truly loved Christ, that they've simply been playing the game, they've simply been doing things for the approval of man. You can turn today and find forgiveness in Christ. He forgives all sinners who come to him. Do not harden your hearts, but turn to him, our gentle Savior, who understands our weakness and wants to offer salvation to all. I pray that you leave here today knowing where you stand and what your answer will be if you were to die tonight. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh Jesus, we thank you for your word which is clear and as we read this indictment of the Pharisees and the scribes, we are sobered. Sobered that there can be those that are so close and yet so far. Those that look so good and yet do not have the substance. Oh Lord, in that day when we stand before your throne, all of that which is not substance will fade away. And only that which is done in Christ and for Christ will last and will stand. And so I pray that you would please help each one of us to evaluate our own hearts and may Jesus Christ be the Savior for each individual here. That they would trust in him fully, not trusting in any of their own works. Father, may the gospel be our only hope. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, may God bless you as you go out this week resting in the finished work of Christ. You're dismissed.